Arsenal in dreamland, controversy at Old Trafford, the Bundesliga is back and there's a big weekend ahead. I'm Dan Burke, this is the One Football Podcast and I'm joined today by Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. And Lewis Ambrose. Good afternoon. Uh, now a, a quick apology is uh, is necessary because we weren't able to podcast this week, uh, earlier this week. I was, uh, I was off sick, uh, Matt was out of the office and... Uh, to be honest, I think I probably needed a few extra days to uh, to process the weekend's football results. Uh, Matt, the time has come. We can't put it off any longer. We're going to have to talk about the North London and Manchester derbies today. You were at the North London derby. Um, did you shed a tear at any point during the game? I, I was going to say, I was kind of, I never wish ill upon anyone, but I was hoping you were <laughs> ill again, Dan. So we could avoid, uh, in fact, talking about it. Um, I did not shed a tear. I was... I'll be honest with you, I felt kind of numb at the end. I was just kind of like, it's so bad that it's not even worth getting worked up for. That sounds absolutely tragic. I know it does. My my dad was sort of saying (laughs) the same thing. I was sat with him watching the game and it was kind of like everything went to plan. Arsenal were brilliant, have been all season. Spurs were shit, have been all season. Uh, Tottenham didn't show up in the first half, um, put more effort into it in the second half, which is, you know, is, is, the, is the hallmark of this Conte side. So there was nothing really sort of surprising about it. Every time you go into a derby game, you always hope for that that old adage of, yeah, form goes out the window when it comes to a derby. Form <laughs> goes out the window. And it didn't whatsoever. The window... <laughs> whatever was 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 wide open and everyone stayed inside um like it was just it was exactly if you plotted Arsenal and Tottenham's trajectory on a map it was a complete you know normal normal answer to uh you know the next stop the next line it would have been mm. uh, a predictable curve is the word I'm looking for because just <laughs> nothing shocked surprised me from either side and that was that was really sad actually yeah yeah, Lewis, you must have been uh, as an Arsenal fan chomping at the bit all week to uh, to come on here and talk about the game. Did you? Uh, you must have enjoyed it very much. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't find it sad. Uh, you might be surprised to learn. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I don't know. The, 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 obviously, you know what Matt said: the form goes out the window. Thing. I think with these two teams and this derby, especially, it's just no matter how good one seems or how bad the other seems on current form away wins have just been incredibly rare I mean like even go back to to when Tottenham were were finishing in mid-table and Arsenal were competing for the league title and most of the games at White Hart Lane ended up a draw um, and then Arsenal would would just sort of win the home games um, you know Spurs haven't won at the Emirates since 2010 it's the only time in I think like the, the past sort of 25-30 years or so that Spurs have won uh, a league game at the Emirates and Arsenal hadn't won one uh, at Tottenham since 2014 so yeah, for me, there was as, as an Arsenal fan, and just looking at this derby generally over the years, like there wasn't, you'd never take it for granted. You never think, oh yeah, yeah, we've got them this weekend. Um, you know, I, I think it's always it's always tight. And I thought it was a weird one when you know I thought the goalkeeper was deservedly man of the match, even though nobody thought for a second Tottenham were in the game, which um, I don't <laughs> know is a bit of a strange way to to leave a derby. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, yeah, I definitely not sharing the the sad or empty feelings that Matt maybe had at the final whistle. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to keep asking you, Lewis, every week about do you actually think Arsenal are going to win the league this year? Is it actually going to happen? Because you know that's going to get pretty boring. And the answer is nobody <laughs> really knows even at this point. But you know, we've been talking about Arsenal all season, saying you know they've they've passed all these tests, but. This next one is going to be the real test, and and it felt like Spurs away was going to be that for Arsenal. That was the the kind of the big one, you know. Are they going to have the mental fortitude to put up with winning at Spurs away, you know, having not done so for for many years? And the way that they came out and played was so impressive, you know. They played so confidently, really took the game by the scruff of the neck from the first whistle. Were in control, and you know, could have been more than two 0 up in in the first half. Was that a particularly 
uh, thrilling as an Arsenal fan? Did it feel like a real watershed moment for this team that you've really passed that big test now? Yeah, I think even that last win at Spurs in 2014, Arsenal won. They took the lead in the first couple of minutes and then um, just sort of held on to it for the rest of the game, really. To if it, it felt this felt similar to me uh, to the win at Chelsea this season, where Arsenal have gone away from home and not just won a big away game, but actually won and basically played like they were the home team. Um, you know, certainly the first half at Spurs and then pretty much the entire game at Chelsea. I think you know the, to call it a watershed moment. I don't think it's that far off. To it's one thing going to these places and going home with three points, but I think it's another thing to turn up and basically play play a team off the park in their mm. own stadium, in front of their own fans, big game, derby game especially. You know, I, I basically thought the Arsenal players by the end were taking the piss. Um, <laughs> Aaron Ramsdale is obviously in that crowd for um, uh, <laughs> for Mickey takers, I guess, and he really enjoys away games. <laughs> Gabriel Martinelli trapping the ball with his back. Like they would, uh, there's, I don't know, there's a line between enjoying yourself and actually just rubbing it in everyone's faces how much you're mm. enjoying yourselves and I think it definitely went much more towards the the latter on on Sunday I also think just doing it the day after Man City had lost the Manchester derby was big as well I, I mean yeah. you know you can read into that any way you like if City had won then there's pressure on Arsenal because they have to win to maintain the gap between the teams if City lose there's pressure on Arsenal because it's an opportunity to make that gap a little bit bigger but whichever way you want to slice it after any games recently, really, that City have won or not won, it just looks like the pressure isn't affecting the team at all. Yeah. You said, Matt, that you uh, you weren't particularly surprised by the way that Spurs played, um, the way they approached the game, really. Um, I mean, it wasn't a disaster of, of a performance from Spurs, I didn't think. You know, they had the moments, they had the chances. Ramsdale was forced into some good saves, you know, another day they might have got, got a goal back early in the second half and then it's, it's a different game. But that first half, they just seemed way too passive for me. It's been a, a real theme of the season for Tottenham being slow starters. What did you make of that? And what was the atmosphere like in the stadium in that first half? Was there a lot of anger among the Spurs fans? Um, well, the, the atmosphere, again, I you know rarely make it home to, to many games these days. But from speaking to people around me, it kind of seemed like the atmosphere was what it's been all season, which is just one of impending doom. There's this sort of <laughs> dread that normally, um, you know, Spurs have conceded first so many times. They've gone in at halftime um, uh, behind so many times that it was a case of when, not really if. Um, which obviously wasn't helped by the fact that there was mistakes in the first half. You know, the crowd gets on your back and it's not, it's just a, a sour atmosphere, I think, uh, around the rest, around the club. Um, and it's it's just a lack of expectation, really. Spurs, I don't know if, again, we, we don't know actually what the difference is between a first half and a second half Tottenham team. I don't know what's said at half time. Mm. I don't know whether Conte can give his half time team talk at the beginning of the game. That might work. Um, like there seems to be a case of we know nothing's going to happen in the first half. And when it's compounded with the fact that you're then 2-0 down, it's like, we might as well just give up now. <laughs> like in the few games that Spurs have won, like the Crystal Palace game was a brilliant second half and it was 0-0 at half time. There's never any expectation that the first half is going to produce anything. So it's, it's, it's this bizarre sort of waiting game where Spurs fans want to skip through the first half, get to half time, and then hopefully something good will happen. But as you know, with the Premier League, with so many quality oppositions, you're just giving yourself more to do just every single time. And I think Spurs had a few good chances in the second half, but you're talking about a chance to grab a consolation. We were never talking about chances to take the lead. 
Uh, I find it difficult to believe, you know, there's chances to get back into the game. So I don't think it would have happened anyway. Um, even if Spurs had scored one, I thought Arsenal would, would have held on. And it's just, that shouldn't be the baseline. Fighting back in the second half shouldn't be the baseline for Tottenham. It should be, can we go ahead in the first half, mm. for, you know, for once and in a blue mood. <laughs> so it was just, the atmosphere really wasn't one of expectation. So in that case, it was either... We expect to be down and we're annoyed or we are down and we're even more annoyed. And that was the case. So it was really, it was really, really flat. There was no hype amongst the team. And it seems as passionate as Conte is. And, you know, I love him running up and down the touchline and getting, you know, and willing his team to victory. There was just, there was nothing. It just felt a bit, yeah, just felt a bit dead. Mm. You'll get your early goal at the Etihad tonight. Don't worry. That's uh, that's customary for that fixture. So I would uh, be delighted. Yeah, Hugo, delighted Hugo Lloris will have the game of his life, and uh, yeah, Son will probably magically find some form <laughs> as well. And yeah, it's it's all going to go. Yeah. I suppose this way tonight. Really no fuck. Lloris has been awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk to me about uh, about Ramsdale Lewis then, because uh, yeah, he made some outstanding saves in this game. As we said, he's he's been a pretty incredible signing for Arsenal, and I remember you understandably being being pretty sceptical about that signing when it was made uh, last summer, summer before, whatever it was. Um, yeah, he's turned into a great player for Arsenal, hasn't he? Yeah, I think I think most people. It's just so much money um, on a, on a relatively unproven player last uh, last summer. Ramsdale's. Yeah, he's had an interesting season. I think. I don't think. I think this game was probably the best he's ever played in an Arsenal shirt. Um, I thought, or before the game, or, or looking at sort of the season as a whole, I think he's been fine. I don't think he's been like spectacular. I don't think there's been many saves to sort of keep Arsenal in games or anything like that. But even though the odd goal goes in, and you wonder could he have done something differently, there are no clangers. Ever it seems there there are never goals where you you think ah oh, Ramsdale was I mean obviously there's a, a direct comparison with the the first goal in this game and, and Hugo Lloris who's had a few of them himself this season but I think even just having a goalkeeper who maybe there's a couple that he could get to but he doesn't always get there but just doesn't cost you any goals that he definitely shouldn't be costing you <laughs> is you know is sort of is is a, is a great place to start and then yeah like, there are some games and Ramsdale just loves and, and we saw the the scenes at full time um Ramsdale just loves playing in front of a, a home crowd and you know sticking his tongue out and waving his arms around and really just trying to annoy the people who, you know, fair enough. He he likes to point out that for 45 minutes, they call him all sorts of names. So <laughs> when Arsenal score a goal or when the final whistle goes, he just turns around and flashes a little smile at them. And, you know, it's, it's his way of, uh, of, of showing them that it really, really doesn't bother him. And I think you saw that in his performance. As much as Matt says, you know, that Spurs, he didn't ever think Spurs were going to get it back into the game. I don't know, like a, a derby, 60,000 people, that, that sort of cauldron, if you like, uh, like atmosphere. If one of them goes in and then there's 20 minutes, 25 minutes that Arsenal have to hold on for, then I think it would have been a, a big, big problem. Um, not just for Arsenal, but for any team playing away from home in a derby. So, yeah, Aaron Ramsdale made some fantastic saves. I thought the one from Sessegnon in, uh, in particular with his foot was mm. a brilliant save. Uh, the one from Son in the first half when it was only 1-0 as well. So yeah, it would, he came up big on a on a big day with some really really big moments. Yeah, and as for Larice, Matt, you know, really bad mistake for that goal. He's been at Spurs for a long time, been a been a great servant for the club, as they say. What is it? Nearly a decade he's been there now. But has he uh, has he outstayed his welcome at this point for you? Um, outstay, maybe that's a bit harsh. I don't know. Look, I I I think he's not been at the top level for a couple of years. 
Um, he makes some fantastic saves, but would I swap those brilliant saves to someone who's not going to drop some absolute clangers at least a few times a season? Yeah, absolutely. I just don't think it fills the players with confidence. Spurs' defence isn't fantastic at the best of times. Um, and, you know, it's... It, it's like the last line of defence, you know, the goalkeepers are called. And if the defence is poor and they get through, it's nice to know that they're going to have a tough goalkeeper to beat, not someone dropping the ball, spilling the ball, um, putting it into his own net. Like, it's really, it's a disastrous run of form for him. And I think the fact that he's been such a good servant for Tottenham over so many years, I think they signed him 2012, I believe. I think, I think this is his 11th year. Um, the all-time Spurs appearance holder in the Premier League. And the fact that his contract's running out at the end of next year, you know, we're into the final 18 months. That shouldn't that shouldn't be the start of a farewell tour. Cut the farewell tour short. <laughs> Cancel the rest of the tour dates. <laughs> like it's not, it's not it, you know what I mean? It shouldn't be another year and a half of this just because he's been a loyal servant and it's a chance to wave him off at the end of every home game for the next 12 months. No, fuck that. If it's not good <laughs> enough, sign someone else and bring in a good goalkeeper. Like that's always been Tottenham's problem. I think the length that some players have been there. I mean, we're talking we're talking Maurizio Pochettino's first ever game as Spurs manager, if you can cast your mind to West Ham away in 2014. Um, uh, Eric Dyer's still there. Hmm. Kane's still there, unbelievably. The likes of Vertonghen and Alderweireld are probably still, you know, were still there up until a couple of years ago. Um, the Spurs hold on. Ben Davis was signed, I think, 2015. Spurs hold on to players for so long and unfortunately that only makes the situation worse because then you do get to the point where they've built up a lot of, um, let's say, credit, loyalty credit in the bank. You know, when people say, oh, you can't get rid of Hugo. Look what he's done for the club. You can't get rid of Ben Davis. And it's like, well, they should have been gone a long time ago. And unfortunately, the the loyalty breeds more loyalty in a sort of bizarre roundabout way (laughs) where I think... Yeah, I think you'll find that a few other teams would be a little bit more cutthroat about it. Um, look, if you've got a good team, by all means, keep the players, right? Keep the players if you're succeeding and you're doing well. But Arteta's the perfect example, whether someone was loyal, um, whether someone was a big name or this, that and the other. Just bin them off if they're not right for it. Mm-hmm. Ten Hag's doing the same thing and reaping the wards at United. Liverpool have done the same thing as Tottenham. And now their midfield is the same one that won the title and is absolutely shot to pieces, mm-hmm. except for um, except for Gino Wijnaldum going. So, yeah, I, I think we change, you know, Spurs have changed managers so often in recent years. But if you still have the same whoppers in defence or midfield, like <laughs> you're just never going to get anywhere. And it's, yeah. it's it's crazy to see as a Spurs fan. And I know we're going to talk about a potential replacement for Conte if he goes. So I'll save the rest of my answer for that, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm not going to lie, Lewis. I was watching this game, hoping that Arsenal would lose, as I'm sure you can uh, you can understand. Uh, and once it became apparent that Arsenal weren't going to lose, I was just like, oh, well, let's just enjoy it for the spectacle that it is. And, you know, Martinelli controlling the ball with his back. I was like, yeah, that, that's fun. That that reminds me of, of Arsenal of old, you know, the, the, the Thierry Henry, um, Robert Perez days, you know, the, the, the vintage under Arsenal. Do you feel like you're getting back towards that kind of like, enjoyment of watching Arsenal again? Does, does it look like the players are just really enjoying themselves? And what's Arsenal fan TV like that nowadays? Is it just like unbridled joy after every game? Are Arsenal fans tuning <laughs> into asking, it again because it's actually worth watching? You're, you're asking the wrong person there. If, if I need to find an outlet for my unbridled joy, um, I'm not going to Arsenal fan TV to find it. Um, yeah, I think 
it's just it is enjoyable and it's it like it's i think that that era that you mentioned Henri Perez Vieira i think something that was so underrated because they played such great football um is how awful some of them were like how horrible I mean, they were bastards like Vieira <laughs> Omri Dennis Burkamp Dennis Burkamp got bans for you know for just blatantly elbowing people off the ball um Patrick Vieira then his reputation needs no introduction at all <laughs> you, you think of that team and you've got Sol Campbell and Colo Torre at the back or Martin Keown at the back and yeah Vieira Gilberto in midfield Lundberg had a had a temperament on him as well I think Piroz was maybe the only one that wouldn't get involved if there was a big 22-man fight. Robert Piroz would be the the 22nd man when 21 men are in the middle of the pitch, just sitting on the sideline, enjoying the view. Um, And I think that's there's an element of that about this Arsenal for me now. Like, you know, the the way Ramsdale is, the way that Ben White is especially, um, the way that the Gabriel plays. I think there's a a grit and an aggression as well that goes alongside. And I think it goes hand in hand. I don't think it it contradicts, you know, good football. I, I don't think Gabriel Martinelli controls the ball with his back in a derby away from home unless he kind of wants to just stick two fingers up at the Spurs fans as well. So, you know, I, I, I think that sort of confidence and enjoyment of the game, it, it goes along with a certain level of arrogance and, and belief in yourself as well. And and I, yeah. to be honest, I don't think you can, can win the league or compete for the league without both. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got Granit Xhaka in amazing form as well. Odegaard, another great goal here, has been sensational this season. Saka mm-hmm. and Ketia is playing really well. I mean, there's some... Some talk today that Arsenal are in for Leandro Trossard after after missing out on on Mikhailo Mudrik, who's gone to Chelsea, of course. Do Arsenal definitely need another player? Do you think f- to win this title is is that essential for them? Yeah, I, I find it really hard to imagine Arsenal keeping this up without signing somebody. Um, simply for the fact that the squad depth isn't there. Um, I, th- I think the City's win at Chelsea was sort of instructive in that way. It came around the time that Arsenal drew nil nil with Newcastle and. Drawing 0-0 with Newcastle, Arsenal made one sub and it was to bring on a right-back for another right-back <laughs> uh, in Takahiro Tomiyasu coming on. And I think, you know, you see City that same week then brought on Jack Grealish and Riyad Mahrez and one assisted the other for, for the winner. Right now, Arsenal, because Emil Smith-Rowe has been injured as well since September. This was his, he came off the bench in injury time at the weekend. That was his first Premier League appearance since September. There's, there's just not depth. Nobody knows quite when Gabriel Jesus will be back. We played Oxford United in the FA Cup a couple of weeks ago and Gabriel Martinelli, Bukayo Saka and Eddie Nketiah all started that game. And the, the idea that all three of them could start the remaining 20 Premier League games and as far as Arsenal getting the Europa League start all of those games as well is incredibly fanciful, I think. So uh, having Smith Road back will be really, really important and signing somebody, as you say, Leandro Trossard's been is apparently the the target now signing somebody who can play uh, in in one or two of those roles across the front three would be really really important I think yeah what did you make Matt of, uh, of Chelsea hijacking that Mudrick deal uh, a lot of money I'm not sure if he's really the kind of player they need at the moment obviously he's, he's still the young man got got his future ahead of him looks a very talented prospect was that a good move from them or a bit of uh, I don't know throwing, throwing cash around again yeah uh... Yeah, it seemed to be throwing cash around. I never really know with Chelsea who's behind these deals, <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and assume that Todd Bowley is. Um, 
<laughs> if he's the one who's sort of pushed it through rather than Graham Potter being like, no, 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 trust me, we definitely need this guy. It, it kind of seems like Burley's like, well, I don't have the knowledge or the network to really know who's good. So if Arsenal want him, he must be good. Um, kind so, of yeah, like we'll with, just... uh, with Cucurella when Man City. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He just, he's just kind of going off what everyone else says and says, well, he must be good. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to, we're going to buy him as well then, I guess. Um, maybe, maybe he was trying to, I don't know, get the fans on his side by, by hijacking a move from a rival. I don't know. I'm not quite sure if he's got that kind of footballing sense or understanding of rivalries. Who knows? But the, for me, it's definitely the eight and a half year deal is the absolute madness behind it. I get it that everyone's like, oh, baseball contracts and this, that, and the other. And for sure, sign sign a player you know on a long term deal. But it's kind of like he's just an investment piece. It's like a fancy watch or a you know <laughs> a blinging chess set. It's kind of like yeah, you've got him for eight and a half years. Throughout one of those seasons, you would assume, A, he gets really, really good and helps your team, or B, he gets really, really good and you can sell him for more money. You know, you're kind of, he's giving himself multiple shots at, um, at either selling or reaping the rewards from Mudrick's talent. And and again, you know, I guess if in, in some sort of weird way, he could keep him there forever on the same deal, right, for eight and a half years. <laughs> could refuse any new contract talks until 2031. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't see the benefit of it. And I think, I don't know, it kind of seems like I, I'm not on board with the fact that someone, uh, someone from abroad, someone from America doesn't know what they're doing or can't know or understand football, right? There's plenty of people who understand football in America. That's absolutely fine. But he's not helping the stereotype. <laughs> he's not helping the stereotype of, you know, here's a baseball contract. Here's <laughs> loads of signings and I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, it doesn't help the way that Chelsea fans are going to buy into what he's doing if he just does all sorts of mad shit like that. I mean, Newcastle can hand out 10-year contracts. Newcastle could buy Mbappe if they really wanted to, but they're not. They're kind of being sensible mm. on it and their PR team's obviously got a handle on the transfers. They're not doing anything that's too ridiculous or too out of um, outside of the box. But Chelsea going the opposite direction. <laughs> I think it's going to get madder. Yeah. I genuinely think it's just going to get crazy where you're like, this is this is insane. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm quite enjoying it, to be fair. I think the uh, the eight and a half year contract <laughs> is kind of a, a bit of like financial jiggery pokery, isn't it? To kind of like am- amortise the length of the... Uh, the wages mm-hmm. and the transfer fee over the over the course of that year, so you can kind of. I mean, they're in danger of of, of failing financial fair play if they're not careful. So um, I hope for their sake that they've they've thought that through properly. But uh, yeah, but back to Spurs now, Matt, and let's uh, let's finish on the the North London derby by talking about Antonio Conte because it seems like he's you know not been happy all season. Really, um, the team haven't been performing brilliantly, and I wonder how many more kind of bad results he is away from just kind of throwing his hands up and saying this is too difficult. I quit and leaving do you think a defeat to City tonight for example could be the end of Conte or is he not that close to the exit door I I, the problem now is that because Thomas Tuchel whether you believe reports or not has apparently said he's definitely interested it gives Daniel Levy a way out normally we have the question when someone's about to leave you you know you pose the question oh yeah but who do they bring in Mm. it's mid-season who's going to join now that question is completely off the table because we all know that Tuchel is is ready and waiting so I think it it might make a decision easier for Levy to sack him as whether or not Conte will walk it depends whether or not he believes that he's in the right I guess 
you know, will this go down as a, as a, a as a blip on his track record, right? As the guy that couldn't really hack it at Tottenham, he looks a bit weak for leaving. Or is everything that we've seen in press conference recently, you know, what he's going to point to? Is he going to leave and said, look, I said this, 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 and this, you know, for the last six to eight months of my tenure, pretty much since the start of this season. Um, and nothing was rewarded. That's why I left. It's nothing to do with me not being able to hack it, <laughs> but it's for all the reasons that yeah. I outlined in the past six months. So I, I think there's kind of, there needs to be a response to everything that he's saying, whether it's signing new players, um, whether it's being trusted, whether it's uh, uh, the salary rise he apparently wants, whether it's Kane signing a new contract, that one's a bit more complicated. It will all hang in the balance of whether or not he believes the record is going to, the, the history books are going to be on on his side mm-hmm. when he eventually departs. But I think having Tuchel there worries me, not only because it's a good reason for Levy to sack him, like I mentioned, but because Tuchel's notorious for arguing with the board and is quite a tough character to deal with. So what on earth makes him a good fit to work under a chairman <laughs> who does not want to back their manager or invest heavily whatsoever? I think this is an absolute nightmare. It's like... Yeah, it's it's just I I can't fathom how it makes any sense. And we're left with the same um we're left with the same questions that we had post Pochettino, right? Back Nuno, if you don't back him, what's the point? You've binned him off. Back Mourinho, if you don't back him, what's the point? Nothing. Back Conte, if you don't back him, you're not going to back the next manager, are you? So what, what what's the point of bringing in Tuchel if you're just not going to back him? It makes makes no sense. Man, so. Spurs did spend like 170 million in the summer. Like it's not like there's no never any yeah, no, back no. in. Like that's, there are some a good lot, signings. That's a lot of money. There are some good signings. Don't get me wrong. I think the uh, um, uh, I think Spurs have been unfortunate with injuries. I think you know Bentacore, Kulusevski, Richarlison all being out for periods at the same time does not help whatsoever. That's just what happens when you lose your best players. It's not an excuse, but it's part of it. I think it's prolonged investment like I mentioned before, that would have meant Davis was out the door fucking years ago. <laughs> Lloris was out the door years ago. Dyer was out the door years ago. Yeah, last summer they spent a lot and there's been some good investment. I think Richardson, Bentacol, Kulusevski are very good, but it's not just one window. It's the development of the last... When did Pochettino leave? November 2019. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six. This is the seventh post-Pochettino window. And that summer I after mean, the Champions League. So I don't know, but I don't know, like, Ndombele, Le Chelsea. I, I don't want to obviously, like, spend loads of time on this, but I just, like, they mm. they were brought in back then. I personally, like, taking off my Arsenal hat and stuff as well, especially, mm. like, I, I feel like Spurs have spent loads of money just not spent it very intelligently. Like, you're 60 There's million on Richarlison and he's not scored a Premier League mm. goal yet this season. Like, it was just a bad buy. Like, you know, like, uh, that's how I see it anyway. And I think Antonio, mm. like, for Antonio Conte specifically, it doesn't matter. Someone could give him a billion pounds to spend. Like, Chelsea and Juventus of Inter have all tried it before. And then he just moans that he'd like another player and that he didn't get enough money. Like, yeah. he, just, he just does it over and over and over I, again. I, th- I think as well there might be, and this is down to recruitment too, it's it's getting players in the right positions. Um, I think Richarlison was amazing. But did Spurs need another attacker? Mm. They, they, you know, uh, Conte's been screaming for a left centre back. Spurs. I saw. I saw a fun fact about this the other day. Tottenham have not signed a left centre back since Jan Vertonghen. <laughs> Eleven and a half years 
since Spurs signed a left centre-back and Ben Davis was converted there as, as a left-back. Uh, that, that's mind-blowing. <laughs> that's like 22, 23 transfer windows to sign no. Another That's quite a specific position, though, isn't it? Like, older. it's not like was you've it, not played uh, anyone at left centre back during that say, time. You can't say no, no, Sinks no, no, Vertonghen. No, you have to remove all the years that Vertonghen played there and was really good. Yeah, yeah, but, but 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 what I mean is, as you as you get either older, like Hugo Lloris, right, who hasn't been in good form for a few years, or as you start to see over the years, you know what these players haven't worked out. Right, I keep going back to the same names because they're the ones who were in my head. But Harry Winks was there for far too long, right? But made a Sam Dory debut the other day, random. Um, <laughs> Eric Dyer and Ben Davis, as much as I like them and they've given a lot to Spurs, they've been there far too long. A manager's got to come in and go, right, over the, under the last three, it's all shit. That's why I'm here. You guys are out. We need someone new. Like, there needs to be a continuous development. Pochettino spoke about it after the Champions League final, about a painful rebuild because there needed to be players who were loyal that were moved on for the sake of improving and it didn't happen and it hasn't happened in the right areas. And I just, yeah, there's, there are players that could be brought in that would be an improvement on what we've got, but there needs to be continuous investment and I, I can't see it under this current, you know, under Enoch. Yeah. For those listening, I did enjoy the uh, the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition there of Matt uh, talking about Spurs woes while Lewis was taking sips of tea out of his Arsenal mug. It was uh, drinking drinking <laughs> Tottenham's tears, perhaps. Uh, but that's <laughs> not sure, of his business. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you could listen all day, Lewis. But we're going to have to move on. I'm afraid, and uh, we're going to talk about a match that was uh, that was particularly particularly uh, traumatic for me at the weekend. I didn't cry, but I came close. Uh, that was uh, that was Manchester City losing two one away at Manchester United. City going one 0 up in the second half. United turning it around and winning two one. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one place to start really, and it's that uh, that Bruno Fernandez goal. Very controversial for me. It was an absolute joke of a decision, like scandalous stuff. I don't know if you guys mm. uh, agree with me necessarily. I, I guess I guess the question I would have to ask about it, Lewis, is is there any justification for that goal being allowed to stand whatsoever in your mind? No, no. I couldn't believe it. That it it's not a goal, is it? The bloke's offside <laughs> and he's in everybody's way and and he's and he's sprinting towards the ball as fast as he can. And then the goalkeeper's coming out trying to position himself for a shot from the guy that's 10 yards offside. And then some other guy comes and shoots from a completely different angle. And the goalkeeper's like, hold on a second. How, how has that happened? Like, no, like, um, <laughs> yeah, the idea that, that Mamo Akanji was never going to reach the ball, which he wasn't, right? Like, he wasn't going to reach the ball. Uh, the the idea that Edison wasn't going to reach the ball, yeah, sure, but he'd be in a completely different place if he knew Bruno Fernandez mm. was going to be the one shooting and not Marcus Rashford. I, I, I think scandalous. You said I think that's exactly the right <laughs> word. I, I ca- could not understand and cannot understand that as a that decision um, for that goal to stand. I, I just yeah. yeah, and we see it sometimes as well more in the guise of like someone. 10 yards offside and defender clears the ball so that it doesn't go through to him but then like maybe shanks the clearance and then someone run and then the guy who was 10 yards offside isn't offside anymore because the defender deliberately played the ball Mm. again that's nonsense isn't it like the like if a defender shanks a clearance because they're worried about the striker that's behind them who's miles offside getting the ball that well if he wasn't there and he wasn't offside then they wouldn't have done it in the first place so yeah i, I think it's um it's a similar to those situations which i always find a little bit ridiculous um but this one is even more egregious than those 
<laughs> yeah, I suppose that the if if I'm to have any sympathy with the officials whatsoever, Matt, I mean the linesman flagged for offside, and I can't for the life of me understand why that decision was was overruled. And, and as far as I know, VAR didn't get involved at all. It was it was Stuart Atwell, the on-field referee's decision that was that stood basically. And the fact that the law allows for an element of subjectivity, like Atwell does have a get out clause there basically where we say well I thought he was interfering with play and he didn't touch the ball so as far as I'm concerned he's not interfering with play does that element of subjectivity need to be removed from the law for you do you think well I think that's what they're trying to deal with this week right I think the International Football Association border all of a sudden after a, a big decision you know making it look like they're actually working on some progress and they're probably not I, the thing that I struggle with is that it's so blatantly obvious I think subjectivity <laughs> Can, can come with it if there's a bit of a 50-50. You could say, mm. oh, kind of this way, kind of that way. The guy's running full pelt towards a ball. The, the, the thing I liken it to is when someone shoots or crosses a ball and um, it goes, uh, sorry, someone's in the line of sight of the goalkeeper. They always say, are they interfering with play? Are they blocking the line of sight? And even if they go move towards the ball just a tiny bit without touching it, they say, yeah, he's made a play for the ball. Right, he's moved, he's made a play, he's interfered with play because he's changed the goalkeeper decision. This wasn't interfering with play like by just moving your body. Like Lewis said, this is like full pelt running towards it <laughs> and then going, oh no, absolutely. Like, you know, it, 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 I just, it, it blows my mind. I just don't get it. It's like when, um, where th- there seems to be an unwritten rule, right? When you, uh, when you throw the ball back into someone after you've kicked it out and you give it back, that you don't touch it until mm. the opposition's touched it, right? You sort of stand there and you... It's the same thing. Like, you know you're offside. You can't just, like, huddle around the ball and go, ah, ah, not touching it, not touching it. It's like you're obviously interfering. So I, I think it's crazy. I can't... I don't think they can look at it in that sort of uh, subjective style because... It's madness. And if you say VAR wasn't involved, then what on earth are all the screens doing there? <laughs> like that's again, that's absolutely crazy. They're just they're making it up as they go along. And I would really I would are, yeah. I would I think you're pissed off and I think you've got a right to be pissed <laughs> off. Yeah. yeah. It's just one of those where it's it's obviously a wrong decision and yet the pig mole, whoever then come out with some bizarre justification with it, just they can kind of justify the yeah. way out of anything, it seems, can't they? They'll just make up some bullshit reason. Yeah. If it, it felt a bit like gaslighting, to be honest with you. And uh <laughs> I have to say as well, Lewis, like it's difficult for me to, to analyze this game in any objective way because it's so emotional for me, obviously. But I've seen a lot of reports about the game and analysis of the game that suggested that United were brilliant and that they outclassed City on the day and it was a really good performance and United are back and all this kind of thing. I personally didn't think they were very good at all. For large swathes of that game, I thought they showed City way too much respect. We're a bit overawed. We're giving the ball back to City. Um, you know, City got the nose in front and were in complete control of the game, really, until that goal, which turned the tide. And, you know, City have to take some responsibility for that. But I, I, I wonder if maybe this um, this sort of declaration that United are back in business is a little bit premature. What do you think? Uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a case of scoreboard journalism, right? Like, there we go. Oh, the team won the game, so they must be the team that won that were the better team. And we all know yeah. that football just doesn't work like that. Um, you know, half the time. I, th- I thought United were pretty good. I, I agree. I think they were maybe overawed and, and respected City a little too much. But I thought they were pretty good in the first half. I thought they were good value to go in even at half time. Um, and then I thought City dominated from from the wh- first whistle of the second half right through to, to United's equaliser, basically. Um, it reminded me a lot of City's game at Chelsea 
in that way where I thought sort of the first half were two teams that both can play quite a lot better than they did play in the first half. And then you saw it at Stamford Bridge, City came out. They obviously made a couple of halftime subs and, and completely dominated from that point on. It, it felt like a matter of time until they scored their goal that day at Stamford Bridge. Uh, and I had the same feeling um, watching the game on Saturday. Uh, the, the, it was in the balance at halftime. I thought maybe United on the break had the better openings or opening, if you like, uh, in a game where there really weren't any chances at all. And then from the second, the second half began, uh, I thought City were in complete control of the game, to be honest. And and without the offside goal, um, I, I don't think United would have found a way back into it. Yeah, yeah that, that's what, what was so maddening about it, was that it was probably the best City have played in, in quite a few weeks. That uh, that period of the second half between yeah them them going in front and uh, and United equalising. But uh, Erling Haaland, you know, wasn't very involved in the game. Matt uh, barely touched the ball. Uh, he's now gone three games without a goal, uh, which is a bit worrying. And we've had a question from Yogeshwa on the emails. He says, is it really going to be the end of the world if City start without Haaland in the game against Spurs and play with Foden in the false nine role just to remind themselves what these guys are capable of? I'm not suggesting Erling's made City bad, but maybe a change only for one half of a home game might not be a bad thing. Is that a, a sensible suggestion, do you think? Would you take Haaland out of the team and try and get kind of City back to that level that they were playing at last season with the false nine to, to maybe arrest this decline somewhat? Or do you just play Haaland always? Um, oh, God, you're in a sticky situation because you look like an idiot if you don't play the guy who scores <laughs> 21 goals, right? And then you, uh, Let's say they don't do it and City, City fail to score. You, you look like an absolute fool. Um, if it fits the system or the game, the opposition, then fine. But yeah, fair enough. I think Guardiola's got more than enough credit in the bank to say, I'm, you know, tactically, I'm normally very astute and I think it would have worked for this reason as X, Y, and Z. And obviously, you know, he looks all the sm- more smarter if it comes off. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's one of those things where it seems more justifiable if he does it at half time. I don't know, say Haaland has a bad half, it's not quite working, and then he can say, yeah, you know what, I wanted to switch it up. I, you know, I thought the false nine would work better, this, that, and the other. From the start, might be a bit a bit ballsy, a bit mm. of a ballsy move. But, um, you know, I don't know, I'd expect that from Guardiola in like a Champions League semi-final. Yeah. Maybe, not in a, maybe not in a Premier League home game against <laughs> Tottenham. I just feel like we've got to be patient before we start to see the best of this city with Haaland in it. I think like you can see yeah. him like dropping deep for the ball at Old Trafford and he's just like so gangly and cumbersome. It's like, don't just stay up there. Like, don't come back. It's just pointless, really. Like, we don't need you there. Maybe, uh, maybe Guardiola maybe he's even a sounded, of his own success. I mean, Guardiola sounded annoyed that when he when he did drop deep, Dan, that the players actually didn't pass to him. And it was almost like that some <laughs> of the city players were thinking, well, like, what's he doing here? And and just sort of yeah. ignored him and I think there is obviously there is an element of of adjustment for for Haaland and probably for the other players as well to get more used to him, uh, and 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 also probably the progress or some of the progress that was made in the first half of the season has been sort of disrupted by that World Cup break mm. and then everyone comes back and they've not played together for for a month or so which can't help. Um, yeah, it, like, I don't know. It, it feels like a catch twenty two a little bit, right? Because maybe maybe City would be better if as a team and, and things clicking and gelling, maybe City would be better off for a game or two or on on occasion putting Julian Alvarez in there or or Phil Foden back the way that things mm. were last season. But then Haaland and the team aren't going to get more used to each other if he's not playing, is he? Are they? So yeah. if, if it's something that has to be sort of figured out, then there's not really much choice but to persevere and find ways and figure it out during the 90 minutes. 
Yeah. I think actually a bigger problem for City at the moment is that probably four or five key players are not in great form at the moment. The main one being Kevin De Bruyne, who you really notice when De Bruyne is not playing because City don't play well if De Bruyne doesn't play. He's crucial to everything that City do. And if he's having an off day, then City have an off day. And uh, yeah, that's just the way it is at the moment. Hopefully they'll they'll find some form soon. Um, Yugeshwa also asks, do you lot think it'll help City if they believe now that the title is gone and they play without the pressure? I mean, the title is Definitely not gone. It's, you know, eight points behind, but there's still 19 games to go or whatever it is. But um, what are you thinking about City as an Arsenal fan, Lewis? Because I keep sort of thinking, oh, you know, hopefully this setback will kind of jolt them to life and they'll go on one of those runs mm. that they do and, and catch up with Arsenal. Are you fearing that or are you watching City thinking, actually, we've got a really good chance here because they don't look like they're going to get it together anytime soon? Uh, I, th- I think, like, as an as an Arsenal fan right now, I'm thinking of that game uh, in the middle of February. Uh, be- just because the eight points, it sounds like a lot of points, but when the teams haven't played each other yet, mm. if like if City win both of games, it's two points and, and it's nothing. Um, you know, so I, I'm looking at that fixture and I think if Arsenal uh, are eight points clear still or, or more possibly... Um, after that game, then I think the the title race all looks very different. Uh, for now, yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of games recently where I've thought City don't quite, they just don't look right. Uh, Chelsea and United were two of those games. And as I said, the second half kicked off against Chelsea and City looked like City of last season and, and just completely mm. dominated. And again, between the, the first goal and the equaliser at uh, Old Trafford the other day as well. So... Yeah, there is still something very ominous. And and as you say, every year, pretty much since Guardiola arrived, since that first season, which obviously didn't work so well, every year City have gone on a run of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 games where they just win and win and win. And I'm I, you are sort of waiting for that to happen, everything to click and, and that to figure itself out. So, yeah, I mean, if Arsenal get to the... the like I say, this time next month, then the Champions League games start up again and, and there'll be a, a focus on that from City as well. Then I think we have a really different conversation. But right now I am, like you, waiting for everything to sort of fall into place <laughs> and City just to go on one of those 12-game winning streaks. Yeah, right Right now, if we, if we go into that game on 15th of February at the Emirates and we're only eight points behind, I would take that right now and say, like, we're still in with a shout <laughs> there. If it's more than eight, then it's probably, I don't know, it's probably curtains, but... Yeah, we'll see. Lots uh, lots of uh, twists and turns to come, possibly. Uh, just a few other Premier League bullet points from the weekend I wanted to touch on now. Uh, Liverpool losing 3-0 away at Brighton. Um, I think we can definitely say they were outclassed on the day. They were, they were Brighton were by far the better team in that game. It was really a really strange game. Uh, Klopp looked a bit shell-shocked at the end, Matt. Um, there's been some talk, none of it really concrete suggestions that you know he might decide that he's, uh, his work at Liverpool is done come the end of the season. He's taken them as far as he can. Can you see that happening or do you think it's just going to be a case of him riding this out and they'll uh, they'll go again next season? Uh, yeah, I think he'll ride it out and go again. I know he hasn't quite uh, made it beyond the seventh season, I believe, at, at Mainz and Dortmund or maybe seven and a bit. Um, but I think they've actually, in some areas, they've bought very well. In others, they haven't. I think the midfield especially. Uh, it hasn't been a great season for Liverpool, but... I think Klopp's smart enough and a good enough manager to know where to improve. And as long as FSG continue to buy the players that they need or they want, or if they get sold and a, a new a new owner continues to put money into the squad, and I can't I can't see Klopp leaving. I don't think he's that reactionary to completely throw his toys out the pram and be like, right, this sucks now, I'm mm-hmm. done. Like I can't I can't quite see yeah. that happening. 
still got a couple more years left on his contract as well, hasn't he? Uh, and that's for Brighton Lewis. They were, you know, they've been really, really good um, since Roberto De Zerbi came in. Um, that lad Matomo is brilliant. He's uh, He's been in, in great form at the moment. Um, are they arguably better than they were under Graham Potter as as, uh, as him leaving and going to Chelsea and Roberto De Zerbi coming in actually been somewhat of a blessing in, in disguise? Uh, I think they might be, yeah. Like, uh, and, and not to, <laughs> to talk down on the job that Graham Potter obviously did, but I think Roberto De Zerbi's possibly improved them. Like you say, Matoma's been unleashed. They've been doing it in, in some of these recent games without Leandro Tossard, who's their top scorer and, and was so important under Potter as well. So... Yeah, I'd like. I I think they might be. I'd actually. I'd I'd back them for for a European spot at this rate. I think you know. I'd. I don't watch Brighton even when they lose and they play the top teams. I feel like they absolutely give it everything and they go toe to toe with you know with City, with Arsenal, obviously with Liverpool at the weekend. Um, I imagine Trent Alexander Arnold is still spinning in circles after what Clara Matoma <laughs> did to him over and over again um, yeah. on the left wing. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think Brighton are, are fantastic. I think that you know it's just a well-run club, isn't it? To lose a manager who's got you in fourth in the league as, as Brighton, and guess what? It doesn't matter. And you've mm. like, it's Brighton, it's Brighton and Hove Albion. A few years ago, <laughs> they never played in the Premier League, and yeah. they've got you know one of their midfielders was signed by Spurs for thirty million in the summer. The other midfielders being linked to Liverpool and Chelsea at the moment. Uh, the other midfielders just won the World Cup playing uh, like a key role for Argentina. Um, uh, you know, Mitoma's there, Trossard's being linked with Arsenal and Tottenham. How? Uh, how have Brighton unearthed all of these players that apparently nobody else has realised are out there and available, or all for not very much money? So, you know, and then replace Graham Potter, who's been doing a brilliant job for years and gotten better by the looks of things. So, yeah, they've. Everything about the way that Brighton are run seems just fantastic. Yeah. And uh, a one club who I don't think are fantastically run uh, is Everton, Matt. And uh, perhaps you could say the same about West Ham. <laughs> uh, they're meeting in the Premier League this weekend, both in the bottom three as things stand. Uh, you know, it could be the winner of this match keeps their job, the loser loses their job. There's been some talk in recent days about maybe Everton uh, could hire David Moyes as their next manager after Frank Lampard if he's sacked by West Ham, which would be some... Uh, a, a bit of a strange managerial merry-go-round. Um, yeah, how do you see this game going? Do you think there's any hope for these two of getting out of the relegation zone anytime soon? I thought that West Ham would eventually. I know they started the season poorly, and I was thinking, oh yeah, it's a bit of a bad blip. They've got some quality players; they'll be fine. But it just hasn't really panned out like that. They just continuously are playing poorly. I'm amazed at their ability to take a top quality striker and turn him into absolute pish. <laughs> like, I, do, I can't think of a club so consistently without a good forward. I think I, I looked the other day and the last player, the last striker to score double figures in a Premier League season was Marlon Harewood in 2006 <laughs> for West Ham. That was the last guy to hit double figures, I think, or he was certainly the highest in the last 20 odd years. I, I, I just, I'm absolutely blown away by them. And it's because of that, I'm now thinking, well, how are they going to get out of this? I think this Danny Ings transfer has absolutely come out of nowhere, um, moving moving to West Ham. But then again, he hasn't exactly been prolific since leaving Southampton. Um, and is is he suddenly going to turn it on, you know, score? They'll probably need at least 
10 to 12 goals out of him in the back end of the season to get anything. I can't see it happening. And as for Everton, I mean, the less said about anything Everton related on a football field, the better. <laughs> because I thought I had problems watching Spurs, but fuck me. That is... I should count my lucky stars that Spurs are in fifth because that is abysmal to watch whatever Everton are doing at the minute. Um, and honestly, if that is the case that, you know, one stays, one goes, like some sort of Bush Tucker trial uh, <laughs> in I'm a Celebrity, then I think Frank Lampard is the one with no stars and going home. Yeah, Spurs aren't quite at the point where the players are uh, being harangued by fans outside the stadium and dragged out of the cars and, <laughs> and what have you. Are they, yeah, yeah, that's just in the stadium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's not all about the Premier League today because we do have the Bundesliga coming back uh, from the the long World Cup and winter break uh, this weekend. Finally, it feels like it's been a long time since we've had the Bundesliga in our lives. Uh, Lewis, you must be looking forward to having it back as a, a Bundesliga aficionado. Uh, what do you think you are most looking forward to about the uh, the Ruckrunde, as they call it in Germany? Um, probably a team in mid-table whose season is going to be... Like, it's meaningless... We're not even halfway through the season and Bayer Leverkusen are, I don't know, nine points off the Champions League places. Way too good to be dragged into the relegation battle. But Xabi Alonso is the manager and they <laughs> they won their last three of three games in a row, I think, before um, before the this incredibly long break because German football insists on even when there's a World Cup, also still having another month-long break <laughs> after that before we get going again in the, in the new year. And yeah, I, I think... You know, Florian Wirtz is one of the breakout players over the last couple of years in, in the Bundesliga and has not played now since February or March of last year because of his, uh, he tore his ACL. To have him back, it's it'll be really interesting to see what happens uh, there, I think, between now and the rest of the season. Xabi Alonso's basically got half a season with no expectations or low expectations. They can just have a crack at it see what happens and figure out what he wants his team to look like to hit the ground running next season. Uh, you know, I think we're, it's always interesting to see these players, these legendary players and especially absolute top level players go into management and, and see what they can do. So I'm quite happy for him actually, that the environment there now with the way the, the league table sits is one where he can sort of experiment without much pressure for the rest of the season and see what he can get out of the squad. Yeah. Yeah, I love a bit of Xabi Alonso. Saw him at a Morrissey concert once. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's hope his career ends up going better than <laughs> Morrissey's has done in recent years. That's all, all I'll say about that. <laughs> uh, Bayern Munich are out in front at the moment, Matt. Uh, just, I think it's only three points three points ahead at the top of the league. They had a bit of a faltering start to the season. Uh, they've obviously lost the goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer, for the rest of the season. Sounds like Jan Sommer might be coming in from, uh, from Gladbach if they can do a bit of wheeling and dealing there. Do you think that'll be... Um, That'll be them winning the league again, or is there any way, any way you can see them relinquishing their grip on the Bundesliga title? Um, four points clear, actually. Four points. Oh, there uh, we go. yeah, I've. Maybe, I but maybe, maybe, maybe three points by by Saturday. They play Leipzig on Friday, and they're six points clear of them. So maybe Dan's just seen into the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Maybe he has. Um, I, I, I would say yes, but not for the normal reasons. It probably want. For um for the want of a, a decent challenger, I think in the last few years we've always um I know I have sort of always relied on Dortmund and Leipzig to maybe throw their name in the hat for the title, um and really be up there pushing Bayern. And the fact that Bayern's competitors at the moment seem to be Freiburg. Earlier in the season, their biggest competitors were Union Berlin. 
that's what kind of sways it for me in the fact that I think even they might not have to be at their very, very best. Like we said, the Leipzig game is massive because if they win, they're nine points clear of Leipzig, um, seven points clear of Freiburg. And I just, no matter which team's up there, I don't think, like we've seen with Union Berlin, they have the longevity to go throughout the season. I think, honestly, Dortmund and, and Leipzig and are the only ones who can. Dortmund, I think, are nine points behind uh, Bayern Munich. Leverkusen are the other team, actually, that generally push. And like Lewis said, got the 18 points off the top. So I think it's partly Bayern are very good, but partly also there aren't as many competitors as there normally are um, uh, in the Bundesliga that have the nous to, to, to go all the way and push Bayern to the last four or five games of the season. The, the standards, mm-hmm. by the way, that have been set, we're talking about Bayern not being as good. They sold or they lost Robert Lewandowski in the summer and they've got 49 goals in 15 games. And we're talking about <laughs> Bayern Munich not being as good as they usually are. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I think I just didn't expect them to have, um, what is it, 10 wins from 15, I think I see. So yeah, yeah. dropping points in five games is quite unlike Bayern, I think is what I mean. But yeah, just the, the lack of competition, sustained competition from anyone else might be, might be what will kind of tips it. But... Yeah, again, they're really good. Odyssey, the return of it, I'm just looking forward to watching Musiala again. I can't get enough of watching that guy play football. So I'm just really happy the Bundesliga's back for like three players. And one of them's Nkunku, who I think still injured. So Nkunku and Musiala, I just love watching them play football. So yeah, yeah. And, uh, and what of Dortmund then, Lewis? I mean, they, they lost, they've lost six games already this season. That the, They're out of the title race, I think it's uh, it's probably fair to say. Um, are you expecting some improvement from them in the second half of the season? And, and do you think the return of Sebastian Allaire from his uh, testicular cancer diagnosis will um, will inspire them onto greater things? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think an improvement's just absolutely necessary. I think Dortmund have conceded too many goals and not scored enough goals basically for the season so far. It's, it's been pretty pretty awful. Um, and it's a real kick of the teeth to see that, you know, the team that, or the coach, sorry, that they parted ways with in the summer is, uh, well, if he wins on Friday night, three points behind Bayern Munich since taking over mm. at RB Leipzig. <laughs> so, you know, um, Marco Rose is, is doing a good job over at Leipzig. Edin Terzic, not such a good job um, I would say at Dortmund, I think it's fair to say, you know, that when you are the size and and reputation of a club like Dortmund, then obviously teams are going to sit back and it's on you to control the game, to make sure you can't get hit so easily on the break, to to find ways to break defences down. And it doesn't really feel like Dortmund have, have got any of those things so much this season. It, it's very uh, you know, relying on talent. Terzic was, was in charge as interim coach a couple of years ago. But Dortmund had Sancho and Haaland at the time and he, he won the cup and, and went on a winning run to uh, finish in the top four. But, you know, Sancho and Haaland and a, a much fitter and a couple of years younger Marco Royce as well. So I think that that level of talent, especially going forward, isn't quite there. It's it's always tricky at Dortmund because it does feel a bit like you're having to rebuild the aeroplane as you're in the air. And the second half of the season, finishing fourth or in the top four to the sixth at the moment is an absolute priority. Like if I think it's any manager who can't finish in the top four with Dortmund, the the position is basically just untenable. Mm. Um, But they're going to have to do it by relying heavily on Jude Bellingham. And then in the summer, they're going to have to figure out a way to play without Jude Bellingham. So (laughs) it's, 
it's tricky. It's it's tricky to balance those sort of priorities. I think Hella, yeah, it, it's obviously an amazing story, like a really heartwarming story. I think he's he's back. He's back and he's fitter than everybody expected him to be. Uh, you know, he's told stories of when he wasn't attached to a drip in hospital, being in the gym and and just thinking <laughs> about when he could get back and play. Uh, I don't think anybody, you know, uh, there was a break over Christmas and and everyone else was off with their families and he was at the training ground every day trying to get as fit as possible and, and get ready for the comeback. And a few weeks ago, Dortmund had sort of ruled out the idea that he might play this weekend when the when the league returns. And then they took him on the preseason tour because he was so in shape uh, or mid-season tour in, in Spain because he was so in shape and he scored a seven-minute hat-trick against Basel coming off the bench. So... Uh, I would be amazed now if he's not on the bench for for this weekend, and I imagine he'll almost literally have have a new lease of life and and a lot to prove and a weight off his shoulders, and and, and really appreciate just the fact that he can go out there and play football. And yeah. uh, I think that Dortmund obviously will be really hoping that that sort of that mood goes around the camp and around the stadium too, and he can take a little bit of pressure off of everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Right, we've just got about enough time to uh, look ahead to some uh, some big games that are coming up in the Premier League uh, this weekend, starting with one tonight, Matt. Uh, Manchester City taking on Tottenham at the Etihad Stadium. Uh, how are you feeling about that one from Spurs' perspective? Is it going to be similar to the uh, the 3-2 last season or do you think uh, Spurs just aren't in the same kind of form at the moment as they were back then? Um, well, those performances seem to be once in a blue moon normally. However... Having Lucky you're playing that, City. Spurs, yeah, Spurs <laughs> against Manchester City uh, is usually something that goes Tottenham's way. I, I, I think Conte would be would be foolish to basically not just look at last year's game and be like, right, let's try the same thing again. I wouldn't blame him one bit. I think going with anything different would be a bit foolish. I mean, it worked so well. Um, they were really, really good on the counter-attack. And I think their onus is more on Guardiola to to come out and show that Manchester City aren't really out of the title race. So I am expecting a bit of a, a retaliation after the, the Manchester Derby defeat. So that is what worries me, I think, more more than anything, that Guardiola is going to be like, right, we can't afford, you know, to slip up again. They lose points here. You know, Arsenal win on Sunday. You know, it suddenly looks even more of a worse position, despite the fact we're only halfway through. So I expect City to really, really come out and be and be all guns blazing for this one. So despite the fact I'm trying to talk myself into being positive, I can't see it going too well for Spurs. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling quite positive about it from a City perspective. Um, I think, like you said, I think they are, we are going to get a bit of reaction, I hope anyway. But uh, there is heavy snow in Manchester today and there is some talk that the game could potentially be called off. So uh, it might all be uh, in vain, this chat about it. We might have again? to re- rearrange it again. Yeah, who, who yeah. knows? What's your what's your hunch on that game, Lewis? Who, who, how do you see, how do you see it panning out? I mean, I think City will win, but I feel like this fixture happens twice a season. I mean, I don't feel like that. It does happen at twice a season. <laughs> um, but my feeling every single year is that City will win, and and then Tottenham turn up and hit them twice on the break, and you walk around scratching your head, wondering how the hell that's happened again. <laughs> so, I, like, if I don't know, I'm I'm caught between. Oh, but that always happens. So it'll probably happen again. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, it can't happen every single time. Like City have got to win at some point against yeah. against Spurs. So, um, yeah, I, I would lean that way, but I lean that way every time the teams play each other and it never pans out like that. Yeah, I think Spurs have won four of the last five Premier League meetings between the two teams and the one that we won was uh, was during the lockdown season as well. So, 
Yeah, we're due a win, I think, but uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And uh, we've got an even bigger game coming up from the Emirates on Sunday. Arsenal taking on Manchester United. Uh, what's your hunch on that one, Matt? As an outsider, are you um, are you expecting Arsenal to do the business again, or is this going to be another big test and, and maybe a test that's, uh, that they're going to fail? I mean, this one actually definitely on form is is the the two best in the Premier League for sure. They got the two teams on some absolute fantastic form, and I think. What's interesting for me is that Arsenal know what they need to do. I think they've won every single game at the Emirates this season, bar the Newcastle draw, um, I believe, it's just by that one. Um, and for Ten Hag, this is just another sort of uh, crossroads, I think. Yeah, does he stick to his principles and they've been brilliant in some games? Or does he panic away at the league leaders? I'm not suggesting he'll go more defensive, but will we see one or two tweaks from Ten Hag to suggest he doesn't want to... Um, kind of stick with with what's been going on recently. I, I think it would be a really, really interesting one to see more from United's perspective than Arsenal because I think Arsenal's is a little bit more straightforward and keep doing what you're doing. You've got the home advantage. Um, the team, I can't imagine, will change too much. But it will be interesting from a mentality perspective for Ten Hag because I can't see them sitting back, but also going gung-ho away at Arsenal's a bit, a bit of a mad decision as yeah. well. So there might be something in between. That draw with Crystal Palace on Wednesday might have taken the uh, the wind out of their sails a little bit as well. And uh, Casimiro suspended after getting booked mm. in that game as well. So I think that'll be pretty massive. I think he's been very, very important for United in, in recent weeks. I was talking over yeah. Christmas about Arsenal to a few mates, Lewis, about Arsenal's title credentials and whether you know City should be in genuine fear of them. And a few people were saying, you know, it's all well and good winning games in the first half of the season when there's so much to play, so much more of the season to go. It's a different matter when every point is crucial and you're, you're fighting for every point and pressure is on every game. Are we getting to that point for Arsenal, do you think, where every point is crucial? Or does the fact that they've got an eight-point cushion mean that there isn't actually an awful lot of pressure on them? Um, I think I think we're at that point, but I think, to be honest, we've been at that point. Uh, you know, I, th- I think as soon as you're top of the league, you're sort of at that point. Um, you know, Arsenal, Arsenal played Chelsea away when they were top of the league and, and City had that dramatic win against Fulham the the day before and then Arsenal won at Stamford Bridge. Arsenal obviously had the Newcastle game, the disappointment of the Newcastle game, and then before their next Premier League game, watch Man City lose to Manchester United and then turn up and beat Tottenham the the following day again. So uh, like, I think the obviously the the pressure is different and then it will be different as the season goes on. I I think my big question for Arsenal is what happens when Arsenal go behind in games. Um it just hasn't happened much this season. Uh, it happened at home against Fulham and, and Arsenal turned it around. It happened in one other Premier League game that now escapes Was it me. West Ham at home? Yeah, West Ham yeah. at home. That was it on Boxing Day. Boxing Day, um, yeah. and, and, and that was turned around. And it happened at Old Trafford twice because Arsenal equalised. And, and obviously they probably went for it a bit too much and, and left themselves open and United killed the game on the break. So... Like I think that's my question really as, as an Arsenal fan. What happens if United go ahead? How does the team respond? I know the fans will respond brilliantly because they have uh, on the other occasions it's happened so far this season. But you know, at one at some point will will that be the the telling pressure if you like? Uh, as you said, the Casemiro absence is a is a big big boost for this weekend for Arsenal from Arsenal's point of view. And it's hard because, you know, the Newcastle game, nil-nil, and Newcastle have the best defensive record in the league and they've been fantastic this season. 
and you draw nil nil against Newcastle and it's it's not a bad result, it's not a terrible result. But that's I think the point that you're at now in the title race when when you are X points clear and you know that you've got this monstrous Manchester City team chasing you down <laughs> is that's how important every point feels. Like nil nil feels like a devastating uh, <laughs> a blow and and I think it'll you no know, being in the home side, I think it'll feel the same if Arsenal don't pick up all three points against United this weekend, especially with Casemiro yeah. missing. So yeah, I, I think there's massive pressure to win, but they've they've handled that pressure every step of the way so far. And after a disappointing end to last season as well, when fans would have been on their back if this season started slowly. So you know, I um, yeah, I don't know if the, if that pressure's all too different to the the weekly pressure when you're already ahead anyway. Yeah. Well, you'll be supporting Spurs tonight. I'll be supporting United on Sunday. That's just what football does to you when you... Uh, when you Awful, go. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, isn't it just? And uh, yeah, on that note, we'll leave it for today. Thank you to Matt and Lewis for joining me. Thank you to everyone for listening. We're going to be back again early next week. Uh, all being well to review the weekend's action and, uh, and uh, we hope you join us then. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>